Hey everybody, welcome to the Bloody Awesome Movie Podcast. I'm John Burke, and with me from across the pond is Matt Hudson from whatiwatchtonight.co.uk. Matt, how you doing, sir? I am doing very well, JB. Tonight I have a flat white coffee, because it's a little earlier than we record. usually record, so I can have a bit of caffeine in the evening. Uh, yeah, not too bad, my friend. Um, loving life, loving films at the minute, getting a few more under the belt. Um, I've got a ton to watch over the next week, which I'm very excited to start diving into. But uh, I need to know, JB, how are you? Are you keeping Florida safe and well? And are the odds forever in your favor? Oh, I, I don't think they've ever been in my favor. But, you know, um, I actively <laughs> hope so. It'd be nice, uh, especially like I don't play the lottery very often. But if I heard the odds were in my favor, I might try. Um, but, you know, a couple of songbirds, lots of snakes, uh, just trying to stay afloat. Um, otherwise doing all right. How about you? Are, are you keeping uh, England safe? I'm trying to. Every now and then, King Charles calls up and asks for my assistance and advice on things. And I tell him, look, I'm busy. I've got the BAMP to do. You have a full-time job as well. Uh, my dad is tough, Charles. You, you sort it out yourself. You've had years to prepare for this, mate. Um, but no, I'm, I'm good. I'm good. And um, looking forward to discussing tonight's film with you. I don't think I know your thoughts on it because we don't know. I mean, it's funny. Sometimes we share our thoughts on the films. Usually, if they're abysmal, we will do. Um but some usually we try to keep our thoughts to ourselves for the spontaneity. I, th- I think I've got an under. I believe. I think I know what you're going to think of this film. I don't want to say just yet. Well, but uh, I'll leave so that to you to decide to uh, divert. Another anomaly with this particular film, which I I don't know if I've said the full title or not yet, but um, I I've read the book before I saw the movie, which is not usually. I how I do things, um, but I had uh, audible credit. I guess read is strong. I listened to the book before I uh, I um, saw the movie because I had an audible credit and I was like, oh, I should go ahead and um, I read, I, I actually read the original trilogy for The Hunger Games um, and I read the first book before I saw the Jennifer Lawrence movie and I don't know what made me do that. I think I, I had slept on the movie. I started hearing a lot of buzz about it. I was like, oh, maybe I should read the book first because I was reading a lot at the time and I really liked the book and I do think the book gives so much insight to Katniss's character because you are in her perspective and you are hearing her, her feelings because Mm -hmm. you're hearing her internal monologue, which is not in the movie. And I don't feel like the film really nails the love triangle in the first hunger games. And I think that might've led me to wanting to read this is that I felt there's no way the book will translate exactly to the movie. And I am 100% correct. Um, But I think having read the book, made me like the movie more than a lot of other people because I was able to fill in gaps um, that the movie has some pretty blatant gaps, uh, especially in the okay. third act. Uh, it, the To me, um, well, listeners, if you haven't caught on yet, we're talking about the newest Hunger Games film, The Hunger Games, The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes uh, in theaters right now. Um, it is uh, the summary is Cornelia Snow mentors and develops feelings for the female District 12 tribute for uh, during the 10th Hunger Games. And you might know Cornelia Snow as uh, President Snow from the original trilogy. Um, it has uh, a pretty, you know, Francis Lawrence returns to the franchise. He did the uh, last three last movies. Three, that's right. Um, and then writers Michael Leslie, Michael Arndt, and Suzanne Collins, which I think is more than a... I'm not sure if she actually contributes to the screenplay or if she's just getting the book credit, but... Um, uh, book credit she gets. Okay, and we have a pretty star-studded cast 
and also some young people uh, new to the cast. Uh, Tom Blythe is our lead as Cornelius Snow. IMDb with these credits, boy. Um, they're going in order of appearance, apparently. Um, I'm going to jump around. Hunter Schaefer, who is, uh, uh, I guess, on Euphoria, if my daughter has informed me correctly. Um, or at least she likes her uh, from something. I thought she said it was Euphoria, but now I'm like second-guessing myself. Uh, I think plays it is. Tigress. Um, we get, uh, oh my god, the credits on IMDb are terrible. Guys, what are they you are doing to me? Um, all over the place. I mean, shout out to Clement Schick, who played Respectable Man. Let's just say that. Yeah, for real. Um, we get Viola Davis, who's the big star I was trying to get to, Peter Dinklage. Um, and man, Zegler is way down on this list. Where the heck is she? Rachel Zegler, uh, who, if you were uh, a good film goer, you saw West Side Story, Steven Spielberg's version. She was introduced to the cinematic world, basically, from that. Um, then she was in Shazam 2 earlier this year, which a lot of people hated. I, I feel like I have soured on it. I liked it okay the first time, but I, I kind of forgot it existed until recently. Um, I didn't think she was the problem, though. And uh, she's in this movie um, playing kind of the Katniss-type character in this particular film district 12's tribute um i think those are the big ones right am i mi- oh 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 oh! i am missing such a big one who because he's not this imdb i am mad at you this, um, this stinks i don't even see jason schwartzman on this list is he not listed he, he no i'm gonna I've, I've i've ended up going to uh the the wikipedia page in order to get the cast so i don't forget who's in it yeah wow schwartzman is not on the the billings fairly prominent supporting cast member one of my favorite parts of the movie i he oh there he is he's like just embedded in this too many extras um i uh sorry we're not done with the stats i got distracted by mdb's terrible uh (laughs) credits here um the ratings uh from the different uh critic uh, amalgamations we got a 62 percent on rotten tomatoes critic scored 91 audience score which lines up with the last couple of hunger games movies i think yep. except i think mockingjay is much lower um critically and that is a movie i think one did not need to be two parts and two still sucks as two parts but I'd um surprised it much like i look i haven't got the figures up this second but i looked earlier on just to do a comparison because there is that under uh, the idea that or belief or consensus that you know the hunger games films uh, kind of went on a downward trajectory and i thought you know what, i'm gonna have a look at the uh, the RT scores for these, and actually, they're not um, as as wild as I thought they were. I mean, the first one, okay, maybe they are. The first one got eighty four percent, and the final one got seventy percent. So you've got a fourteen percent drop off. But then the second one got ninety percent, and Mockingjay Part One got seventy as well. So they're not. They're, it, it's a it's a franchise of, of films that are fresh, according to RT. If that means anything to anyone, it's not. And I, I do think Mockingjay is terrible, though. And also, I I thought the book was terrible. Um, it was the only one of the books I thought was just absolutely bad. Um, uh, especially the first half of that book. But anyways, 52 Metacritic, so a little little lower on the critics from the Metascore. 7.2 IMDb user score and 3.8 on Letterboxd, which is, I think, pretty high for this movie on Letterboxd, to be honest. Um, this does not feel like a Letterboxd audience uh, type of movie, right? This is a blockbuster yeah. in every sense of the word. This is a prequel, if that wasn't clear yet. Um, it's a prequel to the franchise. We're, we're going back, what, 50 years or something 64 like that? 64 years, John. Oh, thank you. 64 years into uh, the origins of the Hunger Games. This is the 10th annual Hunger Games. And um, it's it's the uh, origin story for President Snow, in a, in a sense. Uh, who, mm-hmm. who he was, how he becomes things. Um, so 
right away, they, that's a huge obstacle. Because if you've seen the original trilogy, which we're going to operate under the assumption that you have, if you're listening to this episode, Snow is a villain. He is vile in every he's sense. Great and, um, and he is because, I mean, it's Donald Sutherland, right? Like he's yeah. he's doing a great job being this despicable entity, this uh, frail looking yet intimidating force, right? Like it, it's such a juxtaposition of his look to his character. And so making that guy his origin story. Now, to be fair, there are definitely prequels that have attempted to tell a villain origin story. When I was listening to the book and watching the movie, which is a, does a, a decent job of adapting the book, uh, I think it runs out of time. Um, even though this movie is over two and a half hours long, it runs out of time to tell the story from the book correctly. Um, and so, it, it, again, I think if you re- read the book, you can fill in gaps that help you appreciate the story. But I, I was not sure if they could convince me to root for this character or more if I should be rooting for this character, right? Like, Because we know where he ends up. And I was surprised that the book was able to walk a tightrope with that, where I was I was liking the character, but also always apprehensive about the character, the things he would do. He would do something that you're like, well, that seems like snow. But then mm-hmm. he would do something to kind of redeem himself a little bit. Like he was playing tug of war with himself. And I think the book does that very well. And I think the movie does a, a pretty good job with it. And I, I thought Tom Blythe was great. Um, in the role. I, I really liked him. I'm, I had not seen him in anything. I do think this is, if, if it's not his debut, I do think it is his breakout um, as a lead performance. Uh, yes. um, when I had heard Zegler was cast, I could not figure out why, because she is more <laughs> of a singer than an actress, right? That's like, she is an actress, but like I, I should say she's a musical actress. She likes, she's perfectly equipped for that. Her voice is incredible. And then when I was listening to the book and uh, found out really early that Lucy, uh, Lucy Gray, whatever it's Lucy Gray, something was a singer. I was, like, oh, Baird. Baird. Uh, I was like, Oh, that makes total sense. Uh, I guess it's like Bard, but they added an eye. And I, I like, I think her voice is great in this movie. I don't like all of the songs, which I felt that way when I was listening to the book. I'm not sure if the songs from the book are the exact songs in the movie or not, but I, I really don't think the writing is well done for the songs, or at least maybe it's the, t- the style of lyric that just doesn't click for me um, all of the time. Some of the songs I think work very well. And uh, I thought Viola Davis and Schwartzman though are by far the highlights. They are incredible in this movie viola davis is chewing the scenery putting all the paprika on the sandwich as blank check would say um and schwartzman is perfectly cast to be that guy like the the pre the precursor uh to stanley tucci's character um he is hilarious there was a part where he made me laugh at a time when a a character died on screen because of his snarky comment and I laughed and I think I was the only person who laughed in a packed theater at a screening and <laughs> was, I was, immediate, I was so embarrassed because I wasn't laughing at the death. I was laughing at his joke. God, I don't believe your word of what you're saying, dude, John. Schwartzman is a lot like Bill Murray. Obviously that uh, Schwartzman's debut was with Bill Murray, right? With Ru- like yes, Rushmore. And I have been a fan of his dry, sarcastic humor since that movie. And uh, even more from the commercial for that movie, when he said the OR scrubs joke, you know, because Luke Wilson's wearing uh, scrubs, he's like, nice pajamas. And he goes, they're OR scrubs. Oh, are they? And then Bill Murray laughs. I have laughed at that joke for 30 years. 
<laughs> and I still think it's great. And it's because of Schwartzman's delivery and, and Murray's reaction that cracked me up. And that was him every uh, step. I got sat at the critic screening. It was a critic screening, but with a public audience as well. Um, next to one of our oldest critics in our area, like old and like he is a veteran. He's been doing this for a long time. He's been on TV. Like he is a legit critic compared to a lot of us that just started our own websites, right? Like this guy is mm-hmm. a, this was his career. And he's often a little bit of, he's very intimidating for a lot of reasons. Um, okay. he, he doesn't like a lot of blockbusters. Uh, it's hard to tell for sure what he's going to like. I don't know how he felt about the whole movie. He loved Schwartzman though. Cause he, and I, when I heard him laugh throughout, not, he didn't laugh at the part that I laughed at alone, but, um, he laughed at almost everything Schwartzman was doing. And it made me even more into Schwartzman's performance. I'm like, wow, you got this guy. You got the guy who is yeah. inherently against this type of thing to laugh consistently. You're killing it, Schwartzman. So I like those, those two were the, by far the biggest highlights for me. Um, I thought they were just so much fun. Uh, Dinklage is doing Dinklage stuff. I like Dinklage a lot. I just do, I feel like he is getting typecast to be the the drunk, angry guy, you know? Which, I mean, not always angry. I guess he's not totally angry in Game of Thrones, but he's angry a lot um, in yeah. Game of Thrones. For, uh, and I think he's great at it. Don't get me wrong. I just, I, I've seen him do more. And it's a shame that he's, I think, gotten kind of locked into this minimal role um, when he is a tremendous talent, uh, station agent is such a great movie of his where he's actually gets to be the lead. Um, even though again, it is about him being a dwarf, but it's still like, you know, he's the lead. He's not just yeah. thrown into a few scenes and then tossed to the side. He does get some good line delivery. So I think when he says, uh, do you hear that? That's the sound of snow falling is just really well delivered. And it, it lands the, it hits the punch that he's going for. Um, Overall, though, I, I think this movie is very watchable. Uh, the big difference for me is the third act. Um, from my memory, and I might be misremembering, but the actual Hunger Games in the book is one third of the book. And the, the last two thirds is learning what happens afterwards and yep. developing the relationship and seeing Snow go through uh, what looks like a downfall and trying to watch him. How does he climb out of the pit of despair, right? Uh, a Dark Knight Rises almost type scenario, right? Like he's a metaphorically yes. thrown into the pit and has to climb out of it because we know where he ends up. But he doesn't just, he's not given that, right? Like everything's against him when we meet Cornelius. And that's why he's kind of, you're empathetic because you're like, wow, no wonder he's so bitter. No wonder he's so angry. And by the end of that, I don't think that's the case. I think there's, he's always evil, but the, the journey to get from the man we meet at the beginning of the story to the end feels much more rushed in the movie than in the book. And it's specifically because I think they are afraid the audience doesn't want the, the stuff after the hunger games. And they're probably right. The hunger games are why we're there, right? That's what won us over in the first one. This one, the hunger games are bare bones by comparison because it's there. It's only the 10th annual. So they haven't gotten to the showmanship that you are at in, in the 64th or whatever hunger games, I guess fifth 74th. So the, the second or the third act of this film should be much longer. There should be more time given to those character traits, the friendship between him and the, the, I forget the kid's name that he's friends with, kind of friends with, but not really friends with. Um, oh, is that Sejanus? Yeah, Sejanus, uh, who's played by that one kid. Thanks. Josh Andres Rivera. Yeah. 
who I liked his casting. I actually thought he did a really good job as well, but I don't think you get to see that dynamic of their relationship in the book. You actually meet his parents multiple times. Cornelius has like a meal with them. And again, you're going to always have that in a book, right? Like you have time to, to devote to these quiet moments, these character development things that in a movie and especially a blockbuster, you got to get to the next bombastic thing. I feel like we could have got to the games a little faster and it would have still have had the impact, but I think they were afraid that people would check out when the games ended. Mm -hmm. The catch is if you leave the games at end of act two and those following moments feel rushed and undeveloped, people are still going to check out because you're not giving them anything to chew on, right? You're just giving them here's here he is with a shaved head now. And I, I think they still drop the ball from what I've hearing. Most people that are complaining about elements of this film, it's the third act that they didn't, they didn't like, they didn't get into where I like that part of the book. I found that part of the book to be really compelling. And in fact, when the hunger games ended and I'm looking at my audiobook, and I still have several hours, like I think I still had like 10 hours of the book left. I'm like, Whoa, what are they going to do for the next 10 hours or whatever? I'm exaggerating. I think I don't think the whole book was 10 hours, but um, I am. I I was like, that's what a baller move that the, the Hunger Games are more of a trapping to get us to the character development that we're really here for. And the movie is the opposite of that. And unless and it's possible I'm misremembering, maybe I was just stunned that there was still book left when the Hunger Games ended. Because the first movie, Hunger Games ends and you have like, an epilogue i think it's like done here's five pages and then your the book is over this one is not that and i thought that was really cool and uh i feel like the movie just rushes it but i still overall liked it and i do think having all of that information about the inner monologues between the two characters and all that from the book helped me to connect in ways that maybe other people aren't and that's not fair to like a movie for things that aren't there right like the movie doesn't deliver certain things that the book did and I'm using the book to leverage my enjoyment of the movie, but I can't separate the two at this point. Uh, so I liked it more than I didn't. I have no idea, Matt, how you felt. I actually don't even know if you liked the other movies, to be honest. What, what's your feelings on uh ballad of songbird and snakes? Well, the other films do. You know, I like this franchise actually. Um, not going to deny though, that it, for me, it did take a nosedive. I don't think I, mm-hmm. for me, I don't think it took as much of a, dramatic or drastic nosedive as possibly somebody like john burke did um but yeah, if you hate, know hate the third movie yeah exactly I, see i don't mind the third movie but it is you know it, it didn't need to be you didn't need to split it into two films you, did, you didn't really I, you didn't. know i get you see what harry potter did and you've got deathly hallows part yep. one and Twilight, it, it did it to so many franchises after exactly. harry potter and deathly hallows though i without meaning to kind of digress there that that worked for me part one leading into Agreed. part two which was just big kind of showdown and finale you, but you don't always need to do that of every film and i know they had discussions about this one about whether they should split it into two parts and i'm so glad they didn't however i'm attacking this now as somebody who hasn't read the book so i find it so interesting to hear your viewpoint from reading the book that in fact it's two hours 40 minutes long almost god help us you know long films you know what i'm like and it still feels rushed which is insanity um so, what do I think about it? Uh, so, as somebody who enjoys all of the films for what they're worth, uh, and think uh, I think Katniss Everdeen is a fabulous protagonist, and Snow is a great antagonist. I went in, but then I went, but I went into this film kind of a bit kind of ho hum, and 
I'm not entirely sure. Well, I think maybe because it's been almost a decade since that last film. Mm, it it wasn't wholly it's wild, right? Pretty much. It hasn't. It wasn't the most wholly satisfying uh, end for me, I don't think. So I kind of thought, well, we're going back in time. What are we, we going to get like a Fantastic Beasts type thing here? But you know, I, I must say, JP, I, 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 had a, I, I had a great time with this film. I think this is a really, really good film. A really good film. Um, and I didn't expect to just to uh, come out and say that. Now, Yes, there's flaws. At one point, Lucy Gray says, wow, this rose tastes like bedtime. And I almost left a theatre in anger, just hearing tastes like bedtime in an actual coming out of an actual human's mouth. But um, the flaws I had or the negatives to kind of start with that so we can end on a nicer note are actually very similar to yours, John. I think Rachel Zegler has a wonderful voice. I think she's great. But something, but, but Jennifer Lawrence had something when it came to those arena scenes and she had to put uh, an aura about her and she brought something so strong to the character of Katniss which I don't think Lucy Gray has now granted they are two extremely different characters you know they are mm-hmm. chalk and cheese in terms of their characters but in terms of you know the my perspective as an audience member uh, in, when, when we're in the Hunger Games I didn't quite feel Zegler in those moments um, and, and, and you know she's not quite the, the warrior that Katniss would become, um, but I, I wasn't quite buying it. However, when she, when she sings and when she uh, performs those songs, yeah, I'm in. Like you, though, I don't always think you needed to have them. I think sometimes they feel a little bit shoehorned in at times. But the, the film's called Songbird and Snakes. The snakes were actual snakes. Well, kind of actual snakes. So there's something. But so yeah, my, my main kind of gripes isn't necessarily the runtime, believe it or not. It is... Just more that, you know, I don't think you needed all of the musical moments in it. That said, I did quite like most of the tie-ins to the original series of films. So, you know, why does, why does Snow have a fondness for roses? Why does he use Poison? Uh, talking about the Hanging Tree song. Um, they did overuse, they overuse the name Katniss a lot in from, from oh, halfway. Yeah. The, the yeah. first time, I was like, that's cool. Nice little wink and a nod. I'm happy with that. Second, third, fourth time, you know, pack it in now. That's far too. Much. The first time, though, you know, a wink and a nod, fine, no issue with that whatsoever. But, but no, I, I actually quite liked that. Uh, I put in my review that it's a, uh, it's got, it's not a twist, but it's a redirection in that third act, which I didn't see coming. Kind of mm-hmm. you to your point. Once the Hunger Games themselves had finished, I looked at my watch because I thought, wow, is that it? Is that, it felt like a bit of an anticlimax. And I thought, what, we've still got an hour to go here. What are they doing now? And yeah, they we like you say, like you have your Dark Knight Rises moment with Snow, where he's now forced to kind of rise again somewhat. And there is your third act. And I can I can see now in hindsight how it would feel slightly rushed because from when he gets from A to B to C quite and then to D quite quickly, mm-hmm. I would have maybe liked a little bit more time in those scenes to process his thoughts and any relationships that he was seeking or um, acting upon, I think they could have done with a little bit more meat on the bones. But I actually quite like the fact that they said, this is a Snow origin story, and that is exactly what we got. We we start the film, seeing him in these very humble humble beginnings, and then him rising through the ranks and trying to prove himself. But at the same time, we still see that he's got this absolutist view. He's still got these Machiavellian schemes. He Uh isn't the great he isn't the good guy per se the film doesn't try to posit him as the white knight here 
there are times of course when you know the film wants you to root for snow but then mm-hmm. there are but then there'll be a moment straight after where you think yeah this 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 guy's he's not the good guy there's shades of gray here which we know would then become much darker shades of gray as he got older um but no i thought this was uh very well di- directed for the most part i think the performances are are very decent i think uh tom Blythe is really very good in the lead role i think he i think yeah. he minds the depth of an already established character world to bring out new um elements which we wouldn't have thought were there uh, which is which ties into a question I've got for you at the end of the discussion. But and um, I liked Rachel Zegler. I think she is very good. I think she's great. Uh, she's got a great presence about her. I just think she lacks something in those Hunger Games scenes. But like you, I think Schwartzman and Viola Davis still still the supporting roles. As does Peter Dinklage. He's, uh, he, he, yeah, he's not in it much, and he's doing the Dinklage. But I think his scene at the very end, his scenes at the end of the film, are, are, are yeah. superb. Uh, such damn good scenes, and he's treading the boards here. He's bringing out all of his experience and his thespian nature, and I think it's a fantastic, uh, short performance from Dinklage. Viola Davis, yeah, she, she's chewing every bit of scenery, and Schwartzman is giving the much needed levity because this film is quite dark, guys. This film is dark yeah, and more grim and depressing, isn't it? Then I'd I remembered it being, but then I also anticipated because you know it's YA dystopian. I thought, yeah, it's going to come with a bit of sheen. But no, it's Hunger Games is about pitting children against children in a battle arena in a fight to the death, and you see it on screen. Uh, it may not be full of blood and guts, but it doesn't matter. It doesn't, it doesn't make it any less impactful on what you're watching here, guys. So, um, yeah, I r- really enjoyed the v- vast majority of this, and I did not think that would be the case. I don't know why. I just thought the trailers weren't really selling me, wasn't really into it, but I liked the twists and turns. I liked the facets to the character of Snow, I liked the fact that they used this prequel to expand the world that we know upon. It felt organic. It felt natural. It felt like the same world. And yeah, a few nitpicks aside, not really much else to say I didn't like about this film. I actually had a surprisingly good time with this. What I will say, though, John, is Ms. Suzanne Collins has a very, has, must have a, a penchant for the word anus because Snow's first name is Coriolanus and Sejanus. <laughs> um, I was like, I've just very odd that is right there but it is what it is and i think jason schwartzman's character lucky flickerman stanley tucci's character in those films was called caesar flickerman so i'm guessing he's like caesar's granddad or something like that so that's my assumption yeah but the question i had for you then jb so the kind of final thoughts for me is i i actually really really enjoyed this film i think i've given it a four out of five uh which is probably a star more than i thought i would there we go twins but i think the film does well at setting up its story it sets up snow for the future and it does expand the world but that said without any sequels or or, or stories on the way the publishers said they've got no plans yet for a story uh, a follow-up because they, they, they only want to work if suzanne collins has a story they absolutely want to do more but they're not going to force her to do them so if we are going to get more stories it's when suzanne collins wants to so at the minute we've got this film and then 60 years later the the other ones does the film justify its existence, JB? It was a great film, but did it, you know, does it justify its its need to be here just to tell the story it did? And this this might be almost a pointless uh, question, but I did think it at the end of it. I mean, I I don't I think it does as a prequel. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know that we need it, mind you. Like, I don't know mm-hmm. that we needed to know why Cor- Snow was so. Uh, awful and i still i don't know for sure that it truly shows us why he's so awful i think it it, there's some interesting elements 
Um, I think learning the Dinklage story, there's some really compelling stuff about the Hunger Games themselves mm-hmm. within his story that I think are, are worth knowing um, and kind of explaining why it was allowed to go for so long because it is the film takes a lot of time asking the same question. Sorry to interject, but they do ask a lot. Mm-hmm. You know, what is the hunger games or why are they here? What, 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 what is it all about? You know, characters are asked that quite a lot and the film does kind of dwell upon morality and humanity and, and stuff like that. So more so I think than the other films. Yeah, I agree. I, I think uh, it it's there. I, I don't have any, you know, I'm one to always kind of hesitate if we need to know more, right? Like I think sometimes we get greedy with like, we need confirmation of something versus it just being our decision, you know, like uh, as a, as a, in, as an audience member engaging with the media to just decide that this is why w- we do these things. Um, but I, I think there are some interesting ethical questions that the movie raises and, and maybe we weren't, tackling ahead of time you know um especially because we see here at the 10th hunger games that they almost are being canceled yes and ships down yeah and when you're thinking of like we watched the first the hunger games we saw that we were introduced to the idea of was the 74th or 75th hunger games or whatever it is and you're like wow they almost ended it at 10 think of all of the people's lives who could have been saved Yep. had they ended it at 10 you know because you're thinking there are 24 tributes at every hunger games and only one winner which means yeah. every year 23 children are killed for 74 years and it could have stopped at 10 so like yep. that that question which did not because uh, you we don't know that it almost ended at 10 when we watched the first hunger games movie so no. like that that makes it feel even more evil that snow is involved with the continuation of this thing that could have ended. And it it makes you, I think, see how it's evil on the surface. And then when you look below the surface, you're like, wow, it's even more evil than I thought, you know, like just the idea of it's evil, but the machinations behind it are even more sinister. And uh, so I think it, I think it does, like you said, this movie is dark. I mean, there are some grisly death sequences, especially mm-hmm. when you keep in mind that they are mostly children committing the acts of horror. Uh, it's a troubling movie in that way. And that's the, it's supposed to be, it's dystopian, right? Like this is the nightmare. This is what we don't want to happen to our society. Um, and I often, I look at like, you know, we, we act like gladiator stuff was so beneath us, but the way we we treat professional sports is not far from the old days of uh, you know the gladiators and mm-hmm. how we will fight each other over our sports teams. You know, especially you soccer fans, uh, you soccer hooligans who riot when your team loses zero to two. Guys. <laughs> well, you know, I'm saying like it, we're, we are we aren't quite to the level of asking people to fight to the death, but like people will fight over. Yeah a game a quote-unquote game and it is you know i think like using fiction to elevate the reality to a point that feels preposterous is a good reminder that we're not that far removed from this you know like it's not 
that it's not that unplausible to think that again in human history we did put humans up against each other to the death there are illegal cockfights happening probably right now or you know dog fights happening right now there somewhere are government in the world sending child soldiers out there to die happening yeah. right now and, and and yes very similar things and so the the ethical questions that these types of stories can raise are important and they don't always directly do it right here we have characters who are tackling the subject matter and the sir janice is is such a vital part of that element right because he is from the districts he he is the quote-unquote american dream right he was at the bottom and now finds himself in a position of authority and power and could have it easy but he is racked with guilt because he he you know, is still district at heart. He knows he doesn't truly belong. That he's not old money. And, and he's against the the games as well. You know, that's that's his thing. He that. hates the Hunger Games. Yeah, exactly. And you've got that bashing up against Snow. Snow and Snow isn't somebody who's sitting there like lustfully. You know, oh, he loves the Hunger Games. It's not that. And that that's where I quite like the kind of grey areas we're getting here because we don't see Snow as somebody who's you know, delighted mm-hmm. at the prospect. You know, he's you know what is the Hunger? He comes up with ideas on how to essentially market the hunger Games somewhat but that's based on the fact that he's fallen for lucy's spell you know he's he has to choose he, well, he's, he's got two paths is you know his political ambitions or or his or, or, or his future with with lucy and you know yeah. so that that sows the seeds of what he's going to become also that dynamic that they introduce that he is from old money who no longer has any yes but that's right is, at the bat, is, off the bat as well yeah yeah and that he's still like um, he walks to the 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 before he finds out he's going to be a mentor for the 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 Hunger Games, thinking it's like their graduation ceremony. He walks there, and the one girl's like, "Why are you sweating?" He's like, "Oh, I gave the chauffeur off today." And she's like, "Oh, I would never." You know, he's yeah. lying. Um, and then like he she's he sees he's starving to death, but he won't eat because he yeah. doesn't want to look like he doesn't have. And that idea of like putting up this facade is so important. And, and his clothes um, as well. And even, even like the Tesserae and the clothes that plays into the later stuff as well. Nice yeah. tie-ins. Um, but yeah, he, 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 and um, Peter Dinklage's character, um, Casca Highbottom, you know, there, there's, there's their kind of, I wouldn't even call it a strained relationship. It's just, or a rivalry, but you know, there's something going on between those two, which ha- is hanging over snow throughout leading into the kind of, uh, the last stages of the film, which and I thought was very interesting. I don't think a blockbuster should be, I, uh, most blockbusters don't attempt to tackle anything that serious. Um, and while this one, I think again, a lot of that is introduced or surface level, it's for some audiences, that's the first time they're ever going to be posed with these type of ethical questions. Yeah. And it's a, it's a powerful thing if they can have the conversation, if they're willing to talk or listen to a podcast like this, where we, we're not going to dive into it completely, but we are bringing it up and it might, they might walk away and start thinking, how do I feel about that? If I were living in this world of the hunger games, would I be against the games? Like I think, I hope all of us want to inherently be against the games because you're putting children to fight to the death. But, some are much more against it than others. Some are much more like Sir Janice, where you feel like you you have to stop it, and others are more like Cornelius or Cor- Corleanus. Sorry, I want to call him Cornelius, uh, Corleanus, because it is like you said. Now I'm never going to not see the anus at the end of his name. By the way, thanks so I much for that. You know, he's more ambivalent to it, right? Like it's just a it's a thing that has to exist, and he's accepting of it until he's faced with Lucy Gray, and that's 
that ethical conundrum. And I think in the book, because you are in his head, you you feel that that tug of war all the more. I do think Blythe does a good job of, of you showing the um, the the struggle when he's thinking it through, kind of thing. But uh, yeah. we can't spend much more time on this. But I th- I think for a blockbuster, it does a good job of actually having some thematic resonance to real world things and things that we should be, you know, asking ourselves as we as we learn and and try to become better people. Um, these are ethical debates that the YA genre and especially the dystopian YA genre tend to uh, lend themselves to to do again if you are thinking past the surface stuff but um yeah and this is a pg-13 as well 12a in the united kingdom so it's it's kind of it's reaching a younger audience with these themes at an early age as well so uh that, that's that's yeah. interesting it's almost using its platform and that's what suzanne collins has said she she has another book series and she kind of flits between the two of them depending on what the message is uh which i found interesting but no i i, I really did actually enjoy this film an awful lot jb few nitpicks aside if 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 this is if they're going to do future films or anything like this you know unlike fantastic beasts you know count, count me in for more which um i think that's a good stopping point so uh matt and i both uh thumbs up for this film uh kind of a surprise i wasn't sure because i definitely thought they could they could fumble the ball on this one and because of the strike we didn't get a whole lot of press uh with the cast um which i think could have hurt it but it seems like it's doing okay at the box office so um, 112 million against a hundred million dollar budget but i think that's lower than all of the other movies though so it still isn't living up to the 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 prequel the the previous but prequels rarely do uh it just depends on if there's a a hunger for it um and there maybe (laughs) wasn't uh at least not as strong again it's doing better than not it's just not as strong as the others um but that's again in theaters everywhere folks if you're a fan of the original trilogy matt and i say check this one out too yep um well i guess it's a quadrilogy uh anyways Let's move to our next segment, Concessions of a Cinephile. If you listened last week, you heard we got rid of media consumption, but it's not gone, gone. It's just embedded in this. And while there is a lot of movie news, especially over the last two days, uh, Scream 7, probably not going to happen, or at least not be the sequel we thought it was. Mm -hmm. Um, Here, today, we're going to talk about prequels. So one of the reasons we switched to Concessions of a Cinephile was this is like water cooler talk about movies. And I thought um, with covering a big prequel release that we would discuss the role of prequels in cinema, which kind of feels like a newer trend. Um, but it's been around for a while, really, when you look at the list that I've gathered here. So just for clarity, folks, if you haven't put together what a prequel is, uh, you've probably also heard the word sequel, which is a movie or story that follows a previous story. A prequel is a story or a, a movie that is can like jumping back in time to tell you how we got to a previously existing story. So mm-hmm. great example, the ones that for me, and I am assuming you Matt, the, the prequel that introduced me to the phrase prequel was star Wars, a phantom menace, right? hundred um, percent. When I think of prequels, that's just what I think the prequels is synonymous with those films. Right. And especially for like my generation, that's what I, I remember, you know, I was a big fan of star Wars. All of a sudden we're getting new star Wars and it's not, continuing the story we're jumping back to see how we got to darth vader right and what a similar coincidence here because we're jumping back following the villain again and to be fair if we were going to analyze i kind of think they did a better job with the hunger games prequel uh than the star wars prequel series Uh, but i mean uh for for a starter for 10 i mean 
He probably did because Anakin Skywalker was introduced as a really nice kid, really nice, mm-hmm. innocent kid who just wanted to hang out with his mum. Whereas Snow is introduced as somebody who was already in the teetering on the edge of grey. You didn't get that Anakin, yep. so it's much more believable with Snow, I think. Yep, political ambitions are a dangerous thing. Um, yes, but so what we're going to do here, folks, is we're going to uh, attempt to discuss: should prequels be a thing? Do they ever really pay off in a way that justifies their existence? The question Matt basically just asked me about yep. specific prequel, but I think in a general sense, do prequels pay off? Now, here's the catch. All of the movies we're about to, to list are well-known prequels. There is at least one that I think might be a spoiler because it was not advertised as a prequel. But it's, yeah. it's over 10 years old, and I now it has definitely been revealed. Most people know it's a prequel, although I just watched it for the first time and didn't know it was a prequel when I watched it. So I got to say, I'm, I may not mention it. Um, I don't know oh. how you feel about it. Do you know what you want to talk about? I, I do now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, I just bolded it uh, to clarify in case. Um, yeah, yeah. But and then there were some movies uh, that, um, you know, uh, the first I, I, I don't I forget that it's technically a prequel because it's it's only half of the movie is a prequel and the other half is a, a sequel Pretty is the Godfather sequel. part two. Right. Yeah. Um, which well, yeah, is way earlier with Michael, doesn't it? About the, the prequel he's covers. The that's right, yeah, and then, and then we get Vito's story as well. Yeah, um, and De Niro yeah. shows up as Don uh, Don Corleone. Um, oh man, and The Godfather and- too. Spoiler, guys, but it's considered one of the greatest films ever made, and it is a prequel, which is a good start to kind of that. What you've just mentioned is you know, the necessity. Are they good? Do we need them? Kind of. I guess. I guess. Of course, it comes down to how well they're made or what they add to the story, but. If you can just throw the Godfather part two in straight away, that's there's a clear the inter- indication. The interesting thing about that one, though, is it is not a full prequel, right? Because you Good are point. telling two parallel stories. Because that's kind of the the point of the Godfather two is you're looking at um, how Michael is following in his father's footsteps and how they are different, and you're kind of juxtaposing those two things together at the same time. And so it isn't a traditional prequel where you're only getting Cor- Corleanus story. You're not also following Katniss as an adult, you know, does yeah. she become the next Corleanus, you know, like what, how cool would that have been though? If that was what you were getting, if we were cutting back and forth of like, she hated him, but now she's become him and you're seeing yeah. how there was a parallel, but that's not what we got, but that is what the Godfather part two is. Right. Cause when you yes. meet Michael in, in the Godfather, he is not, he's like the one member of the family who really isn't involved in the crime aspect of the family. And he kind of falls into it in Godfather part one. And then that's what two does is now you explore how he's become his dad, you know, like how has he become the quote unquote Godfather? And then just how Corleone was not awful at first. He kind of falls into it. Right. Um, Yeah. Yeah. And uh, the, the parallel storytelling they use is, I mean, again, everybody knows this, but, masterful it really yes. really is so damn well done but like you and said there, though it's not a, a traditional prequel in that sense is it's, it? it's not exclusively a prequel right like it, no. it is two things in once which there is a cut of the film though where they put the uh they pull all of the de niro stuff and you watch that first then you watch the godfather part one and then you watch the uh michael part of godfather part two i forget <laughs> what the cut's called it's, I mean, the whole thing is what three hunt, three hours, three three and something yeah. hours. So you could easily and then they just everyone that, just yeah. pretends 
Godfather Part Three doesn't exist, right? Like that doesn't. I've actually yeah. never seen the Godfather Part Three. I mean, it, I've heard it's the Godfather so bad. Part Three isn't a bad film. I, I think Sofia Coppola get you know people just remember that she was cast and she just isn't good in it. Uh, no apology, she's not good in it. But the film itself is, you know, it's it's a good flick. But when it, but but when but when it is like having to be put against Godfather and Godfather Part Two, which it has to because it's the same story, it is noticeably noticeably worse off. But as a standalone, it's fine. But yeah, you, you cannot compare it to to those two. So um, yeah, I mean, if you watch it by itself, it's it's, it's okay. It certainly isn't the worst thing ever, and it's not an abomination. But compared to those first two, JB, it's it is a massive drop off. Now we're not here to talk Godfather Part Two, so let's let's knock out some. I'm just going to list some, yeah. and then we can talk good ones and bad ones. So um, I'm looking at this list. I'm going to read off some that I think are good. I think Pearl, a fantastic prequel, oh, damn, um, yeah. and of course that was it's one of those debates because it's I think it was a planned prequel uh, yes. versus it being a reaction to the success of X. Um, it was obviously it was filmed during the same time. Um, so maybe that one gets a little asterisk for that. Um, uh, some other good ones. Let's see here. Um, I think Bumblebee, a, a pretty good one. Although I don't know that it's good in the sense of it being a prequel as much as it's a good Transformers movie. Let's see here. Um, a lot of these are not good. Uh, you know, we mentioned Star Wars. Um, a lot of people have come back around to appreciate the prequels. I don't. I don't know that I have. I don't dislike it. Uh, but I don't. I don't think they're great. X Men First Class, I think, is a pretty solid prequel. It's also kind of like it's it's almost a reboot, but because we see how the rest of them play out, it is clearly established as a prequel. Especially Days of Future Past, I think that confirms it as a this is dead set a prequel. There's other elements in First Class itself, like there's a, a scene with Logan that definitely tells you that. Uh, Cruella. A pretty good one. Another villain. A lot. Apparently, a lot of the prequels are villains' origins, huh? Like that seems to be the a big trend. I mean, Godfather Part Two, Star Wars, Cruella, uh, Hunger Games, Mamma Mia. Here we go again. I think is better than Mamma Mia. I think the songs are better in Mamma Mia because they had first dibs. But I think Here We Go Again is a better movie. Oh man, uh, a lot of these are not good. Um, Puss in Boots. I don't know if the. I I actually don't like this listed as a prequel. This was not my decision. It, it technically is before Shrek, but it has really nothing to do with Shrek. It just kind of gives you what Puss in Boots was doing before he showed up in Shrek, which I guess is true. That is what a prequel is, but I don't know. It it feels like it could have just been a separate thing, like a separate story it has nothing to do with Shrek even. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> so yeah. I'm, all, I'm on the fence about that. Are there any on here that you think are, are good? Yeah, um, it's, uh, it's fun because looking at the list we have, I do think that there are more uh, clangers than there are uh, mm-hmm. good prequels here, which which then raises the major question of what, do can prequels really actually ruin the story that it's meant to be setting up or, or retrospectively hamper it? Uh, Pearl, I agree with you there. Pearl was so good. Uh, a lot mainly due to Mia Goth is, is, is like criminally, criminally excellent in that film. So damn good. Somehow, mm-hmm. well, I say somehow, got overlooked for winning Best Actress, or at least getting nominated. But horror films aren't the have never been carte blanche of the Oscars. I wish the uh, I wish the oldies would sort that out because some of the best performances have been in horror films in the last few years. Uh, I'm going to throw Prometheus in there, John, and this one comes with the asterisk that yeah. 
upon first viewing, I didn't really like it. I think that yeah. seems to be it's not even a hot take. It's just most people seem that. And then it was literally a decade later, JB. I revisited it around about the time Alien Confident, uh, another prequel to the Alien series came out, where I watched from Ethan and thought, Do you know, I, this is actually quite good, actually. <laughs> I, I like what Ridley's going for. I know he's trying to create these sort of deeper thematic uh, stories leading into Alien, which, yeah. But Prometheus actually, I think, is a fabulous film in its own right. And I like where it kind of sets the crumbs up for what Alien will become. And then I think they dropped the ball with Covenant, which was just your standard Alien film. And it's fine. But Prometheus, out of the two of them, I think is leagues above Alien Covenant in terms of what it was trying to do. I'm going to have to throw Star Wars in. I'm going to say Rogue One. I think Rogue One, I think Rogue One is the best Star Wars film. Now, it's, it's that whole... I, I have to say this every time. Yeah, em- classically and traditionally, Empire Strikes Back is the best Star Wars movie. You know what I mean? It's as to what it's studied in school theaters, its cultural impact. It will always be number one. However, I think actually as a film, like technically, what it's doing, what it's telling with the characters and the big moments, Rogue One is the best one. I, I think the way it leads into A New Hope is seamless. I, I mean, you could argue that Vader wrecking shop in the hallway only for uh, eight hours later, he's kind of kind of really slowly clumsily yep. dancing around obi-wan kenobi could be a little bit odd but we you know he just he's just woken up from a sleep guys maybe in the new hope he's tired <laughs> he hasn't wd 40 his limbs but i think rogue one is i think rogue one is exactly what a prequel should do it it, it doesn't hint i don't think there's anything to downplay what happens in a new hope if anything it makes that luke skywalker blowing up the death scar star even more of a monumental feat now that we know what came before Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, I think, is um, is a fun prequel. And I think it's as good as Raiders of the Lost Ark. And I think I think some people would argue it is. I wouldn't. I'd say Raiders, then Last Crusade, and then Temple. But, you know, I like that they, the second film went back. Uh, Final, 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 ooh, I'm going to leave that one for you because you've emboldened it. I'll save that one. The Hobbit trilogy, The Lord of the Rings, for me, is possibly the most perfect film trilogy out there aside of the bef- before trilogy. Uh, and then they came before... Uh, uh, and back to the future for JB. Uh, and and the Hobbit trilogy came with a lot of fanfare. Peter Jackson was back and production on that. You know that he was winging it. He said it himself. There was no plan. There was no structure. They basically said, make three films. The book's 100 pages long. We need, it assumably to the Star Wars sequel trilogy. Make the films. I have to be out by these dates. Uh, I think the first one is 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 very solid. I think the very the, an unexpected journey, very solid. The other two they can you know they can just quietly be thrown in the bin but uh two more though for me which i think are good uh, annabelle creation i think is a very good yes um horror creation film is and it's very good. creation it's probably the best one other than the conjuring the original but in that thing series to push back a little annabelle is a prequel to the conjuring already yes it's a bit like so it's like it's a prequel of a prequel already. <laughs> It's and yeah. the prequel to the prequel is better than the prequel to the to the original. But Annabelle Creation, that's really solid film. I wanted to throw that one in there because the Conjuring verse gets a lot of gets a lot of pelters, mainly from me. Yeah, but um, yeah, me Annabelle too. Creation and you, Annabelle Creation is great, and Prey as well. The uh, the Predator yeah. film from Disney Plus or Hulu last year, which kind of my pushback res- with that, and it's a very little pushback. I think I know what you're going to di- say. There's no lore in yeah, any it. of the Predator movies, right? Like, it's always a different Predator. It's not the same Predator every time. And no. it's not... Like, Prometheus is looking to explain 
the origins of the Xenomorph in a way that the Predator franchise has no interest in, right? Like the Predator franchise Predator is super loose. On Easter eggs mainly, like in you know, in Predator Two, you'll have something which is all oh, that oh, that was in Predator One, and all the other ones and you'll have like a weapon or something which yeah, can relate there, to one of the old films. But there's no there's, through line. There's no implication in Prey that this is going to affect the Predator, right? Like like these events that yes, they take place hundreds of years before the Arnold Schwarzenegger film takes place, but nothing in Prey implies that it's a direct connection to obviously we know it is but like and again yeah, i, 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 I put too. it on this list uh, so this isn't me like pushing back to you but like when i no, put no, it on no. this list the reason why it's at the end is because i was hesitant to include it because i'm like i don't really feel like it's a prequel like it's kind of it, it it is and it isn't i know what you mean it's not like the, yeah. the canonicity of predator has been something which has been fumbled upon a bit like ghostbusters for 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 years yeah. where you know what it what is canon and what is adjacent and i mean prey i mean you could we were told by the studio this is a prequel so okay it's a prequel but when you watch it other than the 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 weapon at the end which is linked to i think predator 2 of anything um or something there's nothing really in there to say that other than the primitive nature of the predator look what he became by the time he fought arnold mm-hmm. schwarzenegger in dutch um th- that but that's just neither here nor there that's just the predator that came to that uh planet yeah. of that to earth at that time so but if, if they're telling us it's a prequel i think it's a really damn good one does it add anything yes. at all to the to the to the story that it becomes which is again the arnie one the 87 film no well, not really as, but it's a good especially film. if we're justifying the the nature of prequels right like if if the idea of this conversation is do prequels add to the franchise or not or do they hurt the franchise like i think uh, one I'm going to throw out right away that I think hurts the franchise is Fantastic Beast. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. We, they went way too hard on retelling the Harry Potter story, right? Like they're like, we need a a villain wizard and we need a hero wizard, so we'll make it Dumbledore and we'll make it Gris- Grindelwald. And it's like, no, oh. we wanted a movie that was like Indiana Jones, but instead of artifacts, he was getting Beast. What the hell That's happened to that was movie? Gonna be. They said they yes. weren't going to make it a direct tie-in, and what did they do? You know, ticket and they, the first Fantastic Beast film. I think it still made six between six to eight hundred million. I think it wasn't exactly like a solo level flop, but they mm-hmm. the studio wet the bed and thought, oh, we've, we've got to now tie it in directly, give people what they want, and that is what ruined those films. And then a uh, notorious one because for years they wanted to do a Dumb and Dumber sequel, but <laughs> could never get Jim Carrey or um, uh, Jeff uh, Jeff. Daniels. Daniels. Uh, uh, I always want to say Bridges, and I know that's wrong. I'm so um, glad you're the same. To commit that they, I guess they were like, well, what if we go the other way? We'll just cast two younger comedic actors and we'll do Dumb and Dumber-er when Ooh. Harry met Lloyd, which is so bad. Although there's a few funny scenes. Bob Saget yelling there's S everywhere is funny. Um, I don't remember. Uh, yeah, I sadly do. Because uh, <laughs> it was one of the first times I ever saw Bob Saget curse because I hadn't seen a stand-up yet. Um, and so anybody who watched Full House growing up and then sees Bob Saget curse, which is why his stand-up was so successful, uh, because it's so jarring. Because you're like, no, no, Danny Tanner doesn't curse. Bob Saget does, and or did. Sorry, uh, rest in peace. But yeah, bad movie and just a, a really... I think diminishes the kind of the point of like, why do we need a like an origin story for their friendship? Like, it's such a weird decision to do that and i'm sure there's a lot of kids movies that have done that in the past where they try to go back and tell us like how these people became the thing oz the great and powerful 
right? Uh, the the yeah. failed Sam Raimi attempt at James Franco being Oz, and then we how did the witch become the witch and blah 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 um, doesn't work. Uh, obviously, that's following of a version that does work um, based on the Broadway success of Wicked, right? Yeah. Um, which we're getting a, a movie of now, so that's really going to make Oz very yep. powerful feel pointless. Um, I think one that does work, but not necessarily as a prequel, like because most people don't know it's a prequel, but Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, technically a prequel. It is before Raiders of the Lost Ark. It doesn't... I don't think it, it does anything to really make that clear, except Indy's more of a jerk in that movie, yes. if I remember correctly. But otherwise... Yeah it's not like super clear that it's a prequel um, by comparison to some of these other ones where you're like, because especially I think at the time everyone was like, well, it's, it's the second movie. Why would it be before the first movie? What sense does that make? Uh, you've got a couple highlighted, Matt, what are some other, ugh, why did they do this type movies? Yeah. And I mean, you, you, you said as well, the, the definition of prequel is a book or film that tells about events that happened before the events in a book or film that was previously published or made. Or, um, or or a film or book or play that develops the story of an earlier film. And I'm looking at some of the ones on the list, and uh, the first one I've highlighted, I think, does develop. I don't think it's bloody awful. And actually, the title is incorrect based on what the film tells us. Orphan first kill. I think I don't mind the idea of having an orphan prequel because Esther in the first film is an interesting horror antagonist. And I've got no, no problem with them going back in time. I just wish they'd cast somebody else rather than Isabel Furman, who I love Isabel Furman, but, you know, goddamn, do not try and cast an actor who's you know, 15 years older than she was before to play somebody who's 10 years younger than she's supposed to be. It just did not work. And it wasn't even her first kill. So I don't know. But, you know, I yeah. like the idea yeah. of doing yeah. <laughs> it. Everything's wrong with that movie, man. Everything. And then a film like The First Purge, do we like do do we need something to set up the purge? You know, it's a bit like the Hunger Games Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes. How did we get to the first purge? Now I know that this Hunger Games film doesn't tell us how we got to the Hunger Games, and it tells us why. But the first mm-hmm. purge, it's 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 now given us the origin story of how we got to um Ethan Hawke et al. in those uh in that first film and beyond. I like the idea of that, no issue whatsoever. Um but then we've got I've highlighted Dominion, the prequel to the Exorcist and Exorcist yeah. the beginning. Now, okay, now, do we need do we need sequels to those films? No, we we didn't. Need, a bit like Scream and most horror films. To be honest, you don't need a sequel to most of them. But Money Talks, but with Dominion, or, or which was the original Paul Schrader cut, which was been thrown out because it was boring, and according to the studio, Morgan Creek, said it's boring and there's no exorcism. They threw it out and got Rennie Harlan in to do Exorcist to begin. It explained that on our Exorcist to Believer review. Um, and his was much more in line with what the studio wanted, you know, cheap horror, generic horror, generic exorcism. But they had to, they had to, they could have had a chance to a really interesting story because they actually focus on Father Merrin, Lancaster Merrin, who's played, you know, admittedly very, very well by Stellan Skarsgård, unsurprisingly. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they tell his story of when he first encountered the demon, which is what, how they, what they say in the first film, the original. But they just drop the ball so hard with it, really badly. And there's some great ideas in there, like um, the, the the demon came to Africa, uh, and they're uncover and this these uh, archaeologists are uncovering the site of a old church or temple or something where it is believed Lucifer fell from heaven. Yeah, cool. Oh, that's great. Didn't do anything with that. D- it just became nonsense, basically. But the, mm. you know, they, they, Paul Schrader now. 
I think I'd love to see him do put Lancaster Marion's story again. You look at something like First Reformed, but um, you know the idea of diving into that character, but having an actual proper character study before we get to meet him in the Exodus could have been great. It sounds like a good idea. Yeah, exactly. I mean, but the question is, do we need it? No. Do I want it? Would I have liked it? Yes. And that again, a lot of these on this list, JB, looking at things like the Minions and Rise of Gru, do we need them? Do not tell me we need those films. Some of it is down to money because mm-hmm. there are those films make huge bank. They are profit machines for merchandise. But, you know, in terms of the product, do we do we need them? And I'm looking a lot on this list, JB, and I, I would, you know, I'm gonna, I would go to bat and say well over half of these prequels on this list I could do without because I just don't think we need to see or we don't need those particular areas or characters expanded mm-hmm. upon. That's just me though. Yeah. And to me, I, I do think, I don't think there's a definitive yes or no. I think every story has the potential to deserve being told, but when they, when they work, I think we see, uh, we were quick to say, yes, this was, this was justified in and of itself. Like it's a compelling story. If, if the first version of the hunger games we were ever introduced to was the movie we just watched, you obviously wouldn't have like the little nods or the little like, uh, blink of an eye type moments, like the Katniss plant. Um, but I think the story is, if it, it would be compelling in and of itself. And I think obviously I'm not, I think in the world of the books, the Hobbit was first. Like, I don't think it was written as a prequel, right? I think it was like the Hobbit and then Lord of the Rings. Uh, ooh, I, ooh, I think so. Yeah. I'm not a hundred percent on that. So if I'm wrong, I apologize, but the movies are treated like a prequel. Like we saw Lord of the Rings. We meet Bilbo briefly in Lord of the Rings. And then now we're going and we're, we're going to follow Bilbo's story in the Hobbit afterwards. And they definitely expand dramatically from the book. Hugely. So like, that's a weird one, but like, you know, the Star Wars stuff, Lucas always swears he had the prequels in his head ahead of time, but he chose to start with A New Hope, right? So, like, even if you had it in your head ahead of time, you still thought it wasn't worth starting there, right? Like, so maybe those stories were never really justified because they weren't, they were just a part of a bigger story. They're not the part. They're not the story. They're not the reason that we're really there. And that works in in B stories and stuff within the movie, but sometimes they don't warrant a whole book or a spinoff or whatever. Um, and then when they do though, when they do and they work well, uh, we're quick to accept them. And then when it does feel like it's a cash grab or a half baked story, like, Oh, this could be interesting. Like Pearl, why it works so well is it feels like a companion to X. Like it makes X make so much more sense after you see who Pearl was. Right. Yes. Um, and the fact it's a damn good film, like you said, yes. to me, uh, subjective, of course, but it, that helped. Do you, do you think then, uh, and, and, and again, this is, there are arguments for and against, but the planned prequels seem to be the ones which pay off a little bit more or the, uh, pay off a little bit more, I think, like, like Pearl. That's mm-hmm. much more of a compelling prequel than any of the fast four, any fast four, well, five and six. I mean, like, the arguments always made with star Wars too, right? The original trilogy was supposedly always there, but I don't know if that's a hundred percent accurate. Like I know he probably had a framework. I don't know if every component of those three movies. I mean, George says he, George has said before that he planned to do three films. Then he planned to do six and he planned to do 12. Then he planned to do nine. 
I love George Lucas. He's the maker, and I will love that man until the day I shuffle off this mortal coil. But I, I do not believe a word he says when it comes to planning any of those and, films because the first one was just called Star Wars. It wasn't Episode Four to start with. We see though with the sequel series that when there's no plan, even with sequels, it can go off the rails, right? Because they're they're building them on the fly. They're adjusting. They're making corrections. They're trying to. They're trying to fit the palette of way too many people, and that's part of the problem. And uh, you can't I think, do that. I also, think, Joe, just, just to chuck in on that one, the Hobbit trilogy, mm-hmm. whilst not a planned trilogy because three that book shouldn't have been three, it is adapted mm-hmm. from a an yes, existing tome. So then that would then all potentially counter the argument of a planned tr- uh, prequel being better or potentially mm-hmm. more of a slam dunk because that was already there to be adapted and they dropped it. And I think the difference that I was starting to build towards with the uh, the reference to the sequel is hmm. I think every story that is being told to be told because the story is worth telling versus we think people want to hear this seem to be the big difference, right? Like the ones yes. that the, the person behind the storytelling has an idea, has a point, has a purpose, which is what I think Hunger Games, even if you don't like like what Suzanne Collins point was with this she had a clear story to tell here versus it just being a cash grab. Is it a cash grab? Also? Yes. hundred percent. But I felt, especially after I do not like the third book, I think this book is almost her like my bad. Let me fix some things. And while it's a prequel, it does address some of the, the political stuff that the third book is tackling. And I think it's done better than the third book. So she had an idea. She had a story. She had a vision to tell this character's arc. If you have that, then it's compelling. And if you don't, well, it sucks. And that it's seems to be the, the trend. It's like, why are you, why are you telling the story? Cause I, I think a lot of these might start with that in mind. Like, Oh, how interesting would, would Darth Vader's origin story be? And you're like, Oh, probably really. And then you get there like, Oh, not, not three movies worth though. It's, you know, his heart got broken. He's he's an incel, yeah. is what we've learned. Um, exactly, that's it. It's, it. It can, and that's that's that is the the problem with a prequel and by extension as well a sequel is it can retrospectively or retroactively diminish what came before, and that is the danger of any prequel. We're talking prequels yeah. here. That is the danger. Some some of these prequels here have absolutely elevated what came before, and others have kind of put a bit of a dampener on on it yes mm-hmm. you can always separate it and be like yeah no maybe that, that didn't happen but in terms of you know actual story canonicity and narrative it did so everything then builds off of that um for me though john are, pre- are prequels necessary do we need them uh, can can they deliver quality content yes I, I will go to bat for prequels more often than not because of what you've just said does it feel mm-hmm. genuine or does it feel disingenuous? Something like the Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes could initially think, oh, yeah, that needs to be done. But why I watch it and think, actually, no, that that remains in line of what came before. I haven't taken any wild swings in the dark here. And, I, and it does expand on the world of um, uh, Pamen and, and everywhere around that. And then Pearl as well. Star Wars, to an extent, with things like Rogue One and you know elements of the prequels because i and i enjoy those films now for what they're worth whilst acknowledging yeah. what they aren't um and then there are other films like, i mean leatherface you could chuck that and i didn't actually mind that film i thought it was quite decent but there's you know there's there are examples of great prequels which really do work and so i would never like i'd never like there to be a blanket rule where you know it's taboo to do a prequel we, we can't do those anymore no i love it it's but 
it, when they clang though it can be it, it can almost be the most dis- more disappointing than the sequel almost when the, the lead yeah. up to something you love is uh, it's not even this is what I wanted it to be it's just sometimes it can be so wildly or radically different to what the story almost says it should be that it can be so yeah. disappointing but when they get it right man you can get some slam dunks and there are some great prequels mm-hmm. on that list there I mean, we didn't mention directly. We mentioned Star Wars and we mentioned Rogue One, but we got to throw out like Solo has one of the most egregious errors of a prequel where we learn how the character gets his name, Solo. And it's one of the worst things I've ever seen in a movie because it's so bad. It's like, one, why can't he just be Han Solo? Why does he have to get the name? And more, why does he get it from a TSA agent in the the, the Empire? You know what I'm saying? Like, it's horrible. Well, like, I, it's one of the worst things. Before the film and said, oh, we're going to learn about Han, so, how Han got his name. And I remember distinctly people were saying, oh, God, I hope to God they're not going to explain how we got the name Han Solo. And they didn't listen to the criticism on people online, which doesn't always, you shouldn't always do that. But no, it yeah. was unanimous. It, I remember at the time, unanimous people saying, I really hope it doesn't mean they're going to explain his name. And they did, and it stunk. Problem with Solo, John, is for me, Solo is a very enjoyable film. It's the most George Lucas of all the films since Disney took over, I think. But I've said it on Star Wars sessions so many times. I enjoy the film, I do. But if if it never happened, nothing changes. No, there is yep. nothing in that film which directly impacts the films going ahead that we didn't know about. We know Han gets to Millennium Falcon. We know he meets Lando. We know he meets Chewie. We know he does the Kessel Run. Yeah. There's the whole it, immediate dark side plot. But in terms of the, the OT original films, doesn't doesn't matter. You could just it take might it. be the best example of a bad prequel of like a studio or a script being written because. Yes, Han Solo is a love character, and we would definitely love more adventures of Han Solo. But the only thing they gave us in that movie was predominantly things we already knew he had done. It was a tip off list, yeah. Yeah, it was like, it was literally a biopic prequel. Like, it was like, you know how people (laughs) complain about biopics just being a a Wikipedia checklist? That was What if we did that with a fictional character? And it's like, okay, and here it is. Yeah, Yeah, it's the greatest hits, and it's, it's like, you couldn't have came up with anything like his the stuff that is new to us they don't really let breathe at all because they're so concerned with getting us to those moments that we know are coming and, and again and the one that, about. that nobody needed to know his name wasn't han solo like it does not need to be a fictional name it could just be his name like it's a world yeah. that's made up guys what the hell anyways to me john his name is han solo because that's his name i didn't need to see the kessel run was it fun when i first watched it because mainly because of the music yeah the music's great but i didn't need to see Mm -hmm. the kessel run was basically like huge octopuses and that i just thought it was like a trade route which he had to make and that would have done for me and i am i am a huge fan of alden arnreich and i am not in any way blaming him for that movie uh i think he is good in it it's hard to be harrison ford i don't think anyone can live up to that yeah and i just i i don't have any complaints about the general it's just like what were you making lucasfilm what the crap anyways folks that's our discussion on uh the concessions um of a cinephile uh, about prequels of course what do you think do you like prequels do you think they need to should we get more prequels do we need a, a character biopic for every character we've ever seen in a movie ever or should we just let them exist in our minds and where they're probably much better 
Um, yes. But we must move on because time is of the essence. Uh, let's go to media consumption. These are movies, TV, video games, music, podcasts, etc. that we've been watching t- uh, since the last time we recorded. Uh, Matt, we're going to start off with you. What have you been consuming since the last time we spoke? Uh, probably a good thing to do so because your list looks like a, a monstrous one as usual, which I am here for. So for me, uh, I've listened to the horror show and I've watched Double Toasted on YouTube, The uh, again, the bad movie roast and everything like that, which make, makes me giggle uh, when I get back from work or sometimes when I'm at work. Something fun to listen to. I, I, I like my podcast to have some kind of irreverent humour to them, I think. I don't know what that says about me, but we'll, we'll eventually <laughs> listen to the ones that John tells me to listen to. I will get there, but uh, in terms of films, I've watched a few this week. Uh, I wanted to watch a few more, uh, but they'll be on next week's um, list. For example, things like Rustin. Really looking forward to seeing that. Coleman Domingo is getting, like, was getting insane Best Actor Oscar buzz for his role in Rustin. That's on Netflix now. Um, I just got but, a package uh, from Netflix uh, with Rustin swag, including yeah, a very nice book. Um, so yeah, I, I need to. Like I said last week, I need to. Uh, for next year i need to restart my uh communication campaign to get on these lists again because uh, i want for, i want more free swag let's not let's not pretend i don't because i do but in terms of film i haven't watched any tv jb you know me that's that's taboo yeah. for me to watch television and i haven't played any more of spider-man 2 despite enjoying it when i did oh, man. um it's just i can i, I you gotta I'm, beat I'm, it well i know i'm a funny type i'll get back from work and i'll i'll think about playing it all day but then i get back and think I'm going to sit down for a bit. I'm going to chill out. And then when it comes to it, I'm like, you know what? I want to do something easy. I'll throw YouTube on and let that do the work to entertain me rather than me playing a game, getting frustrated. But I've enjoyed it for what I've played so far. It's great. Uh, but film, I've seen three films this week, John, alongside Hunger Games. I saw May, December, Ooh. which I know you saw, you spoke about yep. last week and you were very, very up on it. I, uh, the good folks at Sky um, sorted this one out. And uh, I, I really, I did like May, December a lot. I think Natalie Portman and Julianne Moore are are, are, are Titanic in this film. But what would you expect? Yeah. <laughs> uh, Natalie Portman is one of my go-to actresses because you know more you know in recent years and Black Swan onwards and it all get and then like Lay on the Professional always seems to bring it and more often than not you'll get something like Lucy in the Sky which is yeah fine but more often than not Natalie Portman is an actress who I think is excellent. I think May December is very good. It's very, very d- dark storyline for what it. If it gone once mm-hmm. you, and I know it's based on a on a, like a nineties tabloid real thing in the states, which is awful. Yeah. And I love the way the film kind of posits it. Like this is they they kind of drip feed what's going on to begin with, and then they hit you with it, and then the and then you see the characters deal with the reemergence of this thing that happened to them alongside Natalie Portman's character, who's an actress who's going to portray Julianne Moore's character. And it's really, really well done. I think the guy who plays um, Julianne Moore's husband, who I cannot remember his name for the life of me, I think he's very good in this film. Everyone's really good in this film. It's just a really good film. You get moments of characters are staring down a barrel of the camera and just monologuing. And I am here for that. If it's done well, um, I, I think it's great. Speaking of Pearl, which does it the best I've seen in years. May, December, very good. Will not be for everyone. I understand your point, though, JB, about the humour and the, the line when she opens the fridge. Um, the hot dogs. Uh, the, I was fine with it. I, you know, I, I, it's a line I think to myself most days when I open my fridge. But I, I, it won't be for everybody. It will either be too depressing. It will be too, um, I don't know, TV movie for some people. But 
I think well, it was really quite good. I don't know if I said this on the podcast or in my review, but uh, May December is what if a lifetime movie was made by an auteur filmmaker? And there you go, bang, there it is. Uh, it's so perfect. So yeah, it has that feel to it, but it, that mm-hmm. isn't too. Uh, well, it's part of, of the commentary because it is reflecting on how we make these movies. Like, yeah, it's it's so exactly. it's so many layers. And it feels like a tabloid story from one of those rags come to life, essentially, even in the way it's presented. And, I, and I'm here for that. It's not a uh, a strike against the film, but uh, interesting that, well, you saw it first, so you would have picked up on it first. But interesting that I picked up on it as well then. Um, I watched The Marsh King's Daughter, uh, Neil Berger, I think his name is Neil Berger's le- latest film. Um, this was uh, released on streaming this week. Neil Berger, who's done divergent the upside voyages the illusionist limitless many many other things so this film stars daisy ridley stars ben mendelson and other people whose names are now of course going to fall by the way so i think that they're kind of like your, your your big hitters in in this film it's a thriller based on daisy ridley's character helena she we see her as a young child played by the young girl who was in the florida project um brooklyn prince and then so we see her early like early years formative years and then it transitions to daisy ridley's character in her adult life and the synopsis is a young mother must confront her long buried past as a child of a kidnapper and the girl he held captive when her father breaks out of prison convinced he intends to take her daughters she sets out to find and kill him himself sounds like a great thriller fun premise very very mediocre film uh, this is, I put it, I only did a quick review on Letterboxd, but I, I even referenced the cliche and I said it. This is a cliche, guys, but I'm going to say it. It's a thriller, which just is not thrilling at all. It is a very boring thriller. Ridley, Mendelssohn, dependable. Do what they can with the roles. They are not allowed any creative freedom because the, the direction and the sto- and the screenplay limits anyone in this film to just trotting out uh, rudimentary dialogue. You know, it's, it, it's just a, really really boring film which could have been an awful lot better it's got a cool premise i like the idea of the family dynamic and how that comes back comes to play later in life but nobody's saving this film this is extremely tepid and i'm not going to recommend anybody out there watches it i've done it for you it's not the worst film of the year but it's not great either so the marsh king's daughter a thumbs down from me uh, a film that's going to get a thumbs up from me which i know it did for you as well thanksgiving Yes, mm-hmm. uh, Eli Roth's uh, film based on the fictitious trailer from Grindhouse way back in 2007 uh, has now become a reality just in time for the holiday, Thanksgiving. We don't celebrate it here, but I may have a massive meal just as an excuse and stand in solidarity with our cousins over in the States. But uh, yeah, Thanksgiving is a holiday themed slasher uh, slash satire from Eli Roth. We have a uh, killer called the the Pilgrim or John Carver, which is based upon the origins of the holiday itself or the apparent origins. And uh, yeah, I really, 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 I thought it was a blast, John. I really did have such a good time with this. It is mm-hmm. uh, again cliche. Turkey was a bit undercooked, the film itself, but I I, I thought it was great. Like the satirical elements at the beginning were fabulous with the whole um, Black Friday um, angle and how that sets up the narrative. The slasher who done it was was good. Uh, yeah, like you mentioned, JB, there are horror nods everywhere. Scream, Halloween, and many other similar ones. The film doesn't do anything 
as good as those films do, certainly in the characterizations. Those films, Halloween, Scream, nail the characters. You remember the characters. There are quite a few times in Thanksgiving where somebody would die or somebody's name would be said, and I think, I don't remember who that is. I cannot remember who that person is. So now I hope before they die, I see their face so I can remember who they are. Um, but then people will say that's just, that's just a slasher trope in itself. Characters are there to be disposed of. Um, but no, I had a really, really good time, JB. It's a fun ride. I don't think it's quite self-aware enough. I think it doesn't quite lean into the Thanksgivingness of it as much as it should do. Of course, of course, there are major elements in the third act where it does and um, in the first act as well. But I think it loses sight of that a little bit. It becomes a little too generic thriller. However, it's as it's a lovely serving of B-movie fun. You've got all the trimmings there. Very much enjoyed it. Eli Roth is having fun. If you want blood, guts and intestines for your, for your entree, Thanksgiving will give it to you. So, yeah, I gave this one a four out of five as well, mainly on enjoyment more than anything. Because is it a great film? No. Is it a good fun film? You're damn right it is, especially if this is your jam or your genre so um yeah a mixed bag may december very good thanksgiving very entertaining the marsh king's daughter yeah it, it, it exists so uh, that's my well, uh, consumption this week jb how about yourself so i'm gonna power through mine um uh, and maybe come back to a couple that i think are worth like noting especially several of mine are not really readily available for everybody yet um because of as i mentioned last week i'm getting a lot of four-year consideration screeners um but as per usual listen to blank check podcast i've been listening to the big picture show specifically the draft episodes where they take a topic and three or more people uh draft movies from that topic a lot they're doing a lot of years um i find those episodes to be a lot of fun and um so, uh, what we, uh, what I've watched movie wise, uh, you were my first boyfriend is a documentary on HBO max, uh, worth checking out. Um, Cassandra, which I didn't know existed, but it's, a, a about a real life luchador. Um, but it's, a, a fictionalized retelling with Gail Garcia, Bernal, uh, Bernal. Mm-hmm. Am I saying that right? Yes. Um, I, I love him. He's great in this, uh, there's somebody else in it. That's really good. Now I can't, I'm drawing a blank, but, um, good movie. Uh, the Holdovers, uh, which is now theatrically uh, in more theaters, uh, the new Alexander Payne film. In the it's States, a- it, is. it doesn't oh, come out sorry. in the UK until January. Well, it, it's that's sad because it's a Christmas movie and it should be out before oh. Christmas. Uh, it's, a, it's a pretty good Christmas movie at the very least. Um, caught Nyad, which is on Netflix now. Um, I'm drinking out of my Ooh. Nyad water bottle, also from Netflix. Thank you, Netflix. Netflix, um, Jodie Foster. Foster is incredible in that movie. Not that Benning's not good, but Foster is just on fire in that movie. I was, I'm like, I was like, oh yeah, this is why we love Jodie Foster. Feels like yeah. I hadn't seen her in a while, um, and I was just like, yeah, she's incredible when she's like on, and she's having a blast in that movie, in my opinion. Um, the League is a really great documentary about uh, the history of black baseball. I don't, I, I don't like saying the word, even if it is the what it, the league was called. All of us strangers. Uh, oh, I was like, what movie is that? Oh, yeah, it's, it's a good movie. Um, not for everybody, uh, but really good movie. Um, I like it. That's probably my favorite, Paul Mescal. Mes- I'm going to go Mescal. The guy that we we didn't like his movie last year, After Sun, that everybody else loved. Um, <laughs> I like this one more, uh, but that's just me. Um, the Promised Land. Uh, it's the uh, uh, Mads Mikkelsen movie. Incredible. Holy cow, what a movie. Um, the teacher's lounge, holy cow, what a movie. Uh, both of those are international films. Very hard. I think to get outside of screeners right lounge. now. 
Sounds a bit like you, John. Yeah, it, it's it's very tough, but a German film, mm. incredible. Trolls band together, Matt. I I liked Trolls. Uh, what whatever two is called? I forget what two is called. Rock uh, World, World Tour. Tour. Yeah. I liked World Tour. I I found the music in it to be excellent. I had a lot more fun with it than the first movie. I don't dislike the first movie. Trolls band together cast David Diggs and Kid Cudi. Man, it's like they they were like. Let's see, this Birkenfield guy seems to like our movies. What if we cast two actors that he just seems to really be behind? I love these guys. Kid Cudi, obviously musician first, but he's just like, I've seen four movies with him this year. Um, I think three actually came out this year, and he's got one more because he's in Silent Night, the new John Woo film that's coming out. Yes, Um, he's in X last year as well. Yeah, he's he's a really fun actor. He's in the the House Party reboot, but he's playing himself, but a weird, twisted version of himself. That is so great. I, I I'm and his movie Intergalactic, uh, which is on Netflix, is incredible. Like it's an animated film, just so good. So Trolls Band Together has more storytelling flaws, similar to the first movie storytelling flaws, but it's undeniably fun and a cute movie. Um, I laughed out loud several times, and the songs are pretty good. Uh, Shada, incredible movie. Another international film not going to be readily available to see just yet, but it will be soon. Definitely worth watching. And I caught Ridley Scott's Napoleon, which is now in theaters everywhere, which we will be talking about next week on this podcast. So I won't say anything right now, but it's long. How long? There you go. Two hours and 38 minutes. Well, saying that, we've just covered the Ballad of Songbirds of Snake, which is, you know, the with same. credits to 240. And, you know, I didn't really feel the runtime too much in that one. So I can't really roll my eyes too much this week. I felt I the runtime more in Napoleon, but by the end of the film, I was not upset about it anymore. Like, because it, it does pull you in. Um, I, sure. I, At least it pulled me in. I, I was in a, a, a fairly crowded theater for a uh, Tuesday night opening screening kind of thing for a two and a half hour movie and a historical biopic. Uh, I don't know how anyone else felt. I do know that a couple left 30 minutes into the movie, but everyone else stayed the whole time. And I, I just could not tell if they liked it or not. Had no clue. Um, they watched it. They were quiet. They stayed, but that I didn't hear like applause or laughter or there was one, there's, one lady reacted to a sex scene uh, in a way that she definitely did not approve of it. But, <laughs> um, uh, other and there's no nudity in the film, mind you, but there is. There's a couple of sex scenes. Um, but yeah, uh, yeah. But th- that's what I've been consuming, Matt. You, the usual um, large hall, but then again, it's FYC season. It is. Uh, we're coming up towards season. I've, I mean, I'm part of a few critics groups and. It is going wild in terms of what is being sent out now. It's really, really ramping up. And yeah. holiday season is the best time of the year. And when it's awards season as well, double whammy. Well, folks, before we leave, we have to check in with one another to make sure we're doing something to stay bloody awesome. And Matt, I need to know what you've been doing to stay bloody awesome this week. Uh, well, I've had a migraine recently, which hasn't been bloody awesome. So that took away at least a day and a half of being bloody awesome. But since because because we've had a short turnaround kind of i think since the last episode it feels like it then i've i've my, i've been bloody awesome by f- having family time i saw my uh my kid this weekend and her sister came down as well and we had a good fun time we went to the huge this huge trampoline park i watched with a coffee because dad um and that was a lot of fun went out for some dinner and then the next day we went uh, to the we went chasing martians which i think i mentioned before but not far from where i live is the is the site of 
where War of the Worlds was set, where HG Wells set the Martian landing. It is right there. I, you know, we go there every weekend, and my kid loves to try and spot Martians. Uh, and this time I scared <laughs> both of them because I <laughs> I played the sound of the Martians, the siren on my phone, and was like, oh, my oh, God, yeah. they're here, go! Because um, it was time to go, and it's the easiest way to round up two kids. It's like, oh, my God, the Martians are coming. I'm, I can't fight them off. Go! And it worked very well. But, um, yeah, just, just, hang, just hanging out and having family time, just enjoying... Uh, it was very busy. It was always busy, you know, trying to get do things and rush around and, and get things done. But it's always very enjoyable, very satisfying. I wouldn't change it for the whole world. And and due to that, I didn't ha- I didn't do anything else this weekend apart from hanging out with the kids. So, and that'll always be the most important thing to me. And that's how I've been staying bloody awesome this week, JB. And uh, going forward, going to be watching a lot of films though, so that may take up more time as well. How about yourself though? Um, I am on Thanksgiving break. Um, it's, it's always nice, uh, to get a little break, not to mention Thanksgiving break is the precursor for teachers that were, we get like a week off. I don't get a full week off as a college professor. I only get five days instead of the whole, the whole nine, uh, that most public schools got, but it's a precursor because I also, uh, public schools, we got out, um, like the 17th or 20th of December. And then you go back on like January 4th, I get done with my classes on december 8th so i'm almost on like a month off basically uh so this is that kind of like a pre-warm-up of like hey you're almost on a really long break between semesters um so yeah i'm like this like oh yeah i lost two days but i gained like two weeks so it's like i'm not too mad at it um but this is you know it's a nice break you get to be with family like you uh you know i i had to drive to an airport today which is uh, I never like driving to the airport, but driving to the airport the day before Thanksgiving, not ideal. Um, yeah. But it it worked out. Everything went smooth uh, for the most part. And um, yeah, I'm just, uh, you know, we already celebrated Thanksgiving. We actually did our Thanksgiving on Sunday because one of our family members is uh, going to visit family elsewhere. So we wanted to make sure everyone was included. So we did our Thanksgiving on Sunday, but we're going to have some type of dinner tomorrow. I don't know what yet. Apparently I'm going to. I'm apparently going to go to a grocery store the night before Thanksgiving. So that'll be fun. Yeah. Seen a film uh, I, Thanksgiving, John? I, I don't know why what's happening. Yeah. I'm just like, what have I done today that I'm being cursed with an airport and a grocery store? I've, I've planned poorly, but uh, yeah, that's, that's how I've been staying bloody awesome. It sounds like I'm not staying bloody awesome. Maybe I need some to rework this, but um, I think you do the, the, the precursor to Thanksgiving. Think of all that one. They had all the food already. So that was cool. That, that's bloody awesome yeah the food was good i made a good thanksgiving dinner um i made it but we we did my my wife and daughter don't love turkey and so i did i made a roast chicken instead yeah i i like turkey although i have made i've heard many people argue like we only eat turkey on thanksgiving for the most part like most people don't do a whole roast turkey there's probably a reason for it i i like a like a deli turkey all the time i'm all in on deli turkey so i don't know um, what the difference is um if it's same with most meats, if it's overcooked, it's really not quite, really not very nice. And but I'll, yeah. I'll have it. Look, if if I if I came around to Shea Burke and there was a, a huge turkey at the table with everything else, I'm not turning around and walking out. Word. But I made a roast chicken instead, and it came out pretty good. So yeah. that said, that's Win-win. our episode, folks. Um, we are up on Hunger Games: Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes. Uh, if if you like it, let us know. If you don't like it, let us know. We want to know your thoughts on prequels in general. Uh, should we keep doing this? Should Hollywood buck the trend? What's the deal? Next week, we're going to talk about a prequel to the world. I don't know. It's Napoleon. 
the Ridley Scott film starring Joaquin Phoenix, uh, Vanessa Kirby, and then a bunch of other people. There's so many people in this movie. I don't know most of them, but there's just so many characters. And Ridley knew that most people don't know history because he straight up puts their names and what they do on the screen multiple times where he's like, this is so-and-so and they do this. I'm like, oh, thank you, because I don't know. I... I as an American was became painfully aware of how little I understand French history. I don't know anything contextually. Uh, I have heard of Napoleon. Obviously I could not like it before watching the movie had no clue chronologically where he fit into the world. Um, I'm still confused on so much of it. It's so much happens in like the late 1700 France. Like there's just so much going on. Um, there is a lot. I'm, I'm just looking forward to those accurate French accents from everyone. Yes, everyone in Napoleon is doing the the. Uh, no, I really wish everyone was doing Joseph Gordon-Levitt's from the Walk French accent because that would have been freaking hilarious. <laughs> um, yeah. Instead, they're they're just they're just not doing accents at all. Anyways, we're gonna be talking Ridley Scott's Napoleon next week. Um, I'm very curious to to hear a lot of people's takes on this because I was surprised at what this movie was um, because it wasn't what I thought it was going to be. That's all I'll say, folks. In the meantime, you can follow us on social media. On Instagram, we're at Bloody Awesome Movie Pod. Twitter. We are at BAMP underscore podcast. B-A-M-P underscore podcast. You can also follow us on the old Facebook, Bloody Awesome Movie Podcast there. Um, we are a Rotten Tomatoes approved podcast. So what we say here goes and it ticks up or down that tomato, uh, the thermometer based on that you can follow us individually i'm at burkereviews.com and at burkereviews on all the social media platforms matt where can they find you on the interwebs uh, you can find me what i watch tonight.co.uk and just search what i watch tonight across all the socials including letterboxd and if you like what we're doing here at the bloody awesome movie podcast we ask that you give us that five star rating on whatever podcast catcher you use to listen as it helps other people find the show with that we encourage you to keep watching movies and stay bloody awesome. Blood, 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 bloody, 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 blood, blood, bloody,